You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. The Necrocasticon, where we blend horror and metal for your pleasure, and ours, with special guests from horror and metal, who post smoke and walk ball. Ah! Thomas R. Clark. Mr. Scott reacts. You don't have to pay for it, which I think is ridiculous. Sergeant Fury Dan Roberts and Uncle Skip Novak. Train, train! And where can you find the Necrocastican, Sergeant Fury? Wherever you get your fine-ass podcast. Mondays on Project Entertainment Network. We're gonna talk with the mayor. Cause the mayor says he wants to have a chat. We're gonna talk with the mayor. Cause the mayor says he knows where it's at. Boy, howdy, does the mayor know where it's at, citizens of Oleander? The mayor currently would like to say, Citizens of Oleander, I am your mayor. I am Pikmin, and I would like to say, please keep Oleander clean and green. That is the new slogan of the city. Keep Oleander keen and green. I mean, it's not the new civic motto or anything, but it is the new civic slogan to keep people from making the city dirty. Thank you so much. And also, the mayor would like to remind people, the cemetery is a wonderful place to have a picnic. Why not have a picnic at the cemetery? Also, convince your friends and family to move to Oleander. Live in Oleander. Die in Oleander. That's the new civic motto. All right, here's the show. Hey, everybody. It's me, D.B. Spitzer, and that guy over there... Here, here, here. I'm here. Oh, I'm oh, here. Okay, I was pointing to my virtual left, but you're actually on my virtual right. Dave? Yes, okay. I'm, I'm raising my hand, even though you can't see it. That's why I'm describing <laughs> it. I'm wearing a short sleeve. It's kind of hairy. I got a little suntan on, but I'm raising my hand. I'm here. Very and cool. And I am well. <laughs> All right, one more t-shirt sold. Uh, good to hear. Good to hear. I, I am... Still pale as always. Got to stay inside or my flesh catches on fire. I am not a vampire. I just have real pale skin. And... Yeah. I've been out. I've been out. I mean, the weather... So it was uh, like... um, It was so so Saturday night, you know, it got cold. Yeah. Uh, The the, the hoses froze. You know, so, you know, I was out chipping ice off, you know, the, the, the goat's water. But, you know, by the time the sun got up there at noon, it was, I mean, it wasn't a Hawaii or Southern California weather, but it was really nice, and uh-huh. there was no clouds. And yeah. It, it was just kind of a good day to do uh, do work on the farm, so, you know, uh, fix the little fences, cut down some some uh, bushes that were tearing down some fences. And, uh-huh. Yeah, it was just kind of a good day. Nice. Very Nice. Yeah, no, I, I had a pretty uh, good day. I mean, I, I didn't do anything. <laughs> I haven't been Best doing much of anything. Ever. I haven't had any energy at all. Uh, yeah. Let's see what I, I was like goofing around City Hall and I was like down in the basement and I was like thinking about it. And I was like, why do we have so many portraits of the Oleanders? 
And then I was looking at all of the, I, I, I mean, I, I said this last time, I was looking at all the portraits of, uh, what's her name, Oleander? Felony. Felony, yeah, I can never no, remember. Her real name is Felicia, but I don't think anybody's called her Felicia since she was 12. Okay, well, uh, so I was looking at Felony Oleander, and paintings and and I, I was just like is she some kind of immortal witch and i just keep thinking about this and i just keep thinking is she some sort of immortal witch or vampire is like old man Oli man ander who formed this town like just her with like a fake beard on and then like later like was like aha and like has a bunch of witches and stuff this is just a theory if i die next week everyone will know that this is true just a theory dave uh, okay, as he inches away slowly but surely from the virtual <laughs> radio station. Yeah, no, I mean, to be tween, I mean, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I think that, you know, Josiah Oleander uh, is kind of like a tall, pictures I've seen of him are kind of like a tall Yosemite Sam. Yeah. Uh, like you, you might get brain transfer or something, or or immortal mimic, but uh, I don't think you can clean up and look like felony. I don't know. I was I was just kicking that theory around, and I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that uh, about uh, I don't know uh, one of the most mysterious kind of like influential people in town. I don't I don't know. I just wanted to say that maybe they're a vampire or a vampire witch. And if I end up being true in the future, considering how weird this town is, I can uh, just kind of, like, say I told you so to everyone? Well, I, I mean, it is does have a higher missing person percentage. Yeah. The whole Oregon Triangle. Yeah. You know, so so not, a, not that I'm feeding your delusion. Uh -huh. Here, have a little bit more. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, it does have a high percentage of people disappearing. Yeah. But uh, I'm still, my money's still on that big old giant pot on that it's a temporal anomaly that's the reason why people disappear. Huh. But, but we'll put you down as vampires. Yeah, uh, vampires for local stuff and uh, for the woods, I want to say uh, most of the Forest Service is vampires. And that's, uh... I don't know. I just came up with that. Yeah. I just came up with that. Sorry. I haven't been feeling you know, great. You know what Darcy has? Uh, <laughs> what? This town is boring and people, stupid city people get lost in the woods. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. That, that, that's, the one that, that's what she has marked. Oh, I, I, I so. didn't know that was a theory. I thought that was a fact. <laughs> yeah. No, no. Yeah. So, 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 so on that big chart of why people disappear, um, you know, Darcy, Darcy has, it's boring. That's yeah. why people leave, not boring, but it's a boring town. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and uh, Pierre Lumberjack, he has Wendigos. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, there's people just sort of put down their theories, and you know, you put your dollar, and then yeah. when it's finally resolved, and uh, whoever gets whoever wins gets the pot. But sure. you know, that pot's been going there since you know 1890. Yeah. Huh. Hmm. All right. Well, so 
speaking of boring speaking of boring towns yeah yeah uh mayor talking to the mayor uh well okay interpretation of the mayor uh said hey uh farmer's market ours is cool Everyone should check out our craft market. Everyone should check out our craft market. Don't go to Boring's craft market. Boring's craft market is boring. And uh, do you know what Boring's? You know what Boring's craft market does not have? What's that? It does not have Uncle Owen's uh, goat milk soap. That's true. That is Oleander's does. Yep. Suck it, boring. <laughs> and I'm glad Although, that uh, the pandemic's going on, and we don't have to be out there, or I don't have to be out there with the radio station. And also, I uh, I don't know. I do like the farmers market, uh, the uh, craft market. Currently, there's really not much. There's there's fresh cut flowers, and there's like dried flowers and starters and stuff like that's what we've got going on at the oleander nursery uh but yeah yeah no there's taxidermy they big a big old taxidermy lot oh yeah 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 you can get the uh lucky rabbit foot keychain kind of thing from there and they've got skulls and kind of fun stuff like that and also right next to that they've got their potato salad and like deli selection kind of things and sandwiches ready to go and a soda fountain so if you need a drink you can go over to a1 and check out the taxidermy and get yourself a mr pib uh, and, and Louis Luau, you know, they've got pineapple chicken. Yep, yep, yep. And pineapple chicken. Someone will, like, point a toothpick with some meat on it at you. And, you know, I always feel guilty and I, like, don't look at them. Just, like, keep going. It's like, hey, come on, there's a pandemic going on. I want to eat some meat on a stick. <laughs> but, yeah, no, no. I uh, always poke my eye out. <laughs> That's why I have glasses. I, I'm so glad I wear glasses because I would just gouge my eye out with that stick, but I <laughs> yeah. still buy it. I love it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no. And uh, I am excited because they have like the year round Bratwurst Festival going on at the Oblivion Cart and Beer Garden, which it's just, it's, they really had to stretch out the Beer Garden uh, this last year. It's like kind of like a good quarter of 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 the park because everyone has to be six feet apart and the lines are super duper duper long because everyone has to be six feet apart so if you have you know what? everyone being six feet apart in line and then everyone has to be six feet apart while they're standing around drinking beer you have a huge area and now that we don't have uh the big old gas in uh the uh, civic center we can now stretch those lines all the way up there <laughs> Oblivion. You know what's really good? What's that? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I stepped on you telling the sponsor. I'm sorry. No problem. But it was Brock uh, Brockworth on a stick. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, but so I guess, I guess boring for all of us knocking it that they actually have, you know, Produce. produce, yeah, produce. Yeah, I, I don't know what's going on. I think they're uh, they had like greenhouse like stuff going on all winter long, and I don't know, probably like hothouse tomatoes and cucumbers and that kind of stuff. But I don't know. Um, I like what we've got yeah, going take, on in Oleander. You, what's that? Yeah, 
Tinky Drought was driving by, you know, and she said, you know, she was going to take care of someone's horse. And, you know, she told me that they looked like they had, you know, melons and, you know, apples and everything. She drove when she drove by. So I thought she was out of town for some reason. Well, this was this was this was like this was like Wednesday before she left. Oh, okay, okay. No, 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 no. no. She She was out of town earlier. I think she is still in town. I'm sorry. That we 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 should cut Uh, that part. We don't need to talk about that stuff. Anyway. Yeah. Hi, Pinky. You're my best friend, but I don't know where you are. (laughs) I know how that goes. But then again, all my friends don't live in town. Um, (laughs) Take that how you want, Oli Hunter. Uh, anyway, uh, so this week, uh, who do we got an interview with? So we have a special person uh, who is going to uh, we're ta- who is he is in a um, podcast among being a writer mm-hmm. in which he is called it's called Immunities. And immunities is basically a body body snatcher. Oh yeah, uh, story. Very cool. Yeah, no, I covered immunities a while back on People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, and I remember listening to one of the first few episodes way back when it first came out, and I remember really enjoying it. I lost yeah, track of it. Yeah, they're up to season. They're up to season six. Oh, cool. Uh, and this is a Bob uh, Coster. Oh, nice. Very uh, yes. cool. Uh, yeah, and so th- what they're doing, and we'll t- he'll talk a little bit about it, yeah. but they're up there, I believe, their sixth season, Whoa. and he's letting some of the artists write some of their story arcs this year. Oh, very cool. Very cool. All right. Well, we'll listen to that. And then after that, we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to go with uh, an episode of Things Dave Thought About When He Was Feeding the Goats. One of my my faves. All right. Well, everyone, uh, we'll see you after the break. And And again, um, just for those that are tuning in, uh, this is Northern Oregon. It's raining. That's the weather report. Now we've got some much more exciting things going on. And that is we have uh, writer and podcaster Bob Kester on the show. Uh, Welcome, Bob. Hello. It's uh, great to be here. Well, thank you very much. So, um, if some of our listeners maybe aren't as familiar with some of your work, uh, what are what are some of the things you do? Let you let you introduce yourself. Okay. Um, probably uh, my most known thing is uh, I have a podcast called Immunities. It's a uh, ongoing science fiction science fiction slash horror. Uh, Work, you know, uh, serialized work uh, about a uh, the world after a mostly successful uh, body snatcher invasion. Uh, so that that's my biggest thing. Uh, I also have uh, a previous book, science fiction book I did called uh, Insistent Oracles, which was sort of a first contact type book. And I've got a new book uh, called Legacy Door, uh, which is more in is a sort of uh, uh, paranormal suspense thing with uh, a lot of uh, what I would consider Lovecraftian elements to it. Excellent. And you know what? If I ever decide that I'm going to start a reggae band, 
I am going to hit you up and try to steal that title, and we're going to call ourselves the Insistent Oracles. I love that title. <laughs> yeah, my titles are always the product of me like getting on Google and just finding combinations of words that aren't the titles for anything yet. What we used to call Google whacking back in the day is find something that does, you know, where the re- the search doesn't actually return anything. And, so, uh, <laughs> so, so sort of like the Grateful Dead, they pick their name by going through it. Uh, an occult dictionary, just throwing it open and pull, pointing their finger down to the first thing they found. Right, right. Or uh, what is it? David Lynch does that for movie titles, but like it'll be th- there'll be words for things, but you know not for you know. But, but he won't use them for the th- what they're meant for. Like a racer head, you know, is part of a tape recorder. You know, like a, the, the head yeah. that erases tape. Or uh, in Inland Empire. <laughs> exactly. Now I got. Your, your, your latest book, I got a, a copy, and I'm very appreciative. I have not had a chance to completely read it, but I was just fascinated uh, uh, by what I, was, what I did see. And you seem to have this sort of gift to combine different genres, you know, science fiction and horror. Um, is, that, is that difficult for you to combine styles? Um, it has some difficulties. I mean, I think... Usually, like the story sort of comes first, and then it's a matter sort of later of div- of, of dividing it into genres, uh, you know, or you know, figuring out what genre it comes closest to, you know, in, in terms of trying to describe it to somebody. Um, but I mean, there can be something like in uh, in Legacy Door. I like there's like an alien body swap element to it, uh, very different from the one in Immunities, but there is one, and I sort of put that like right on page one basically so that because there's going to be this sort of long process of you know the these characters who are sort of fight from this cursed family sort of figuring out that you know what's wrong with their family and stuff like that and i want to sort of let people know right right away that you know because that could go in any direction and you know i feel like a reader deserves to know it's like it's going to go in this direction (laughs) you know this is it's going to be this kind of book because you know some people you know will you know be drawn to it for that reason and so you know so that's it so if it's like you know a science fiction slash gothic thing i want like people to get sort of both of those genres right away so that they know what they're getting into sure no you you, you want to be up front with your audience and you don't want to disappoint them but it's some of a part of your feeling like well i'm going to write this story and you can just put your labels on it whatever this is the story Oh, sure. And I mean, you know, that that's that, that's a lot of authors attitude. But at the same time, I feel like, you know, as a reader, it's, you know, there are a lot of books out there, you know, and, and you want to you, you want to steer towards the books that you're going to like. And sure. uh, and also putting, you know, like that science fiction element right at the beginning, I felt was kind of like like look at this is almost like looking back like what something I did without really realizing it was that, you know, if you read a Lovecraft story. And it's about a troubled family, and you know, and they don't, and he doesn't, you know, spends ten pages not mentioning that there's like some monster that's eating them one by one or whatever, you know, you know, if you've if you've read a Lovecraft story before, that something like that is going on, you know, and so you've got that sort of built in because his name is established, you know, and I like since my name's not as established, I like wanted to, you know, give people that same sort of like awareness and foreboding. You know, by like having you know sort of hints, you know, teasers at least of all the genre elements, like right at the beginning. Sure. So, uh, and, so uh, definitely. So, oh, I can say it definitely sounds like you're very important to you to develop a, a, a long-term relationship with your readers. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, I. Uh, it's. Uh, I mean, I've. 
I guess I feel like, you know, I tell a certain kind of story, and, you know, the reason I tell them is because they're stories that I haven't encountered in the world, and so I'm hoping they're people like me, you know, who are hungry for whatever that is, and, you know, so, like, if they like one thing of mine, they'll like another thing of mine, and, uh, but, you know, because my things tend to have kind of a slow burn, you know, I want to, I want to, you know, make sure that they, like, invest the time to, like, get to, you know, what you might call the good stuff, you know, and so, so there's, so it's, uh, it's, it's interesting, there's, like, you know, this, some people think of it as like there's kind of like marketing on one side and like, you know, creating art on the other side and that they're completely different. But there's like a huge space in between of, you know, the re- you know the reader deserves to like, you know, sort of be helped along, you know, and not to like, you know, have to like commit themselves to reading like the entire book before they know like whether they're going to like the book or not. That sort of thing. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, well, one thing about other genres, just before we move off of that, uh, the immunities, as I mentioned, you know, since it's a body snatcher thing, I when I envisioned it, it was sort of as like one third science fiction, one third horror and one third humor, because uh, there's a certain amount of humor to like this situation where in, in it, there are like a certain small number of people who were immune to the alien invasion. And they're just sort of continuing to live in the world that is mostly aliens, now, mostly body snatchers now. And I feel like there's a certain... Shaun of the Dead like humor to like your life doesn't completely like like for instance like one of them is an 18 year old who's like leaving who's like deciding to move out from her like alien her uh, alien taken over by alien parents and that she's dealing with almost the exact same issues she would have been dealing with if they had not been taken over by aliens you know like like they don't have the same values and they don't seem to communicate very well anymore so anyway so you know so I, i can i thought of it as being like you know one third science fiction one third horror one third humor but like then you know the audience gets it and they're the final judges and like when i hear back from them all i hear about is like how terrified they were by the horror of the situation which I found interesting, you know, so that, like, you know, to the extent that the humor and in in worked, it worked mostly as, like, a uh, a means of relief, you know, relieving tension in between the horror moments as far as they were concerned. But, you know, well, if it works, it works. So that, that makes me No, absolutely. And doing a, a scripted podcast, that is such another beast than, say, doing an, an interview show. Or, or, you know, me talking about Marvel, you know, or talking about, you know, the weird town I live in. What are, what are some of the challenges, but maybe some of the rewards of doing a podcast scripted as opposed to, uh, to like, an interview show? Well, I came to, a, to podcasting from, like, that side. You know, like, I, uh, you know, I wrote plays when I was in college, and I had written a radio play before I did a, co- you know, like, a, a, an internet broadcast radio play before i did a podcast and i made short movies and things and uh so you know scripted was sort of built into like what i was doing before you know i i hadn't i'd never done a non-fiction podcast and it's funny when i do like a uh, like a high like we'll do like interseason episodes where we talk about a movie or something like that you know just to get people so people can get to know the actors and stuff like that and those are actually like the new weird thing for me as opposed to like the scripted things which you know I feel like every, you know, I know, I know those. So like, I feel very controlled when I do those. Whereas, you know, with the conversational podcast, I'm like, wow, like literally anything could happen. (laughs) But uh, one thing I guess about uh, doing it as a podcast, you know, a scripted thing, which, you know, I hadn't dealt with before when I was doing these self-contained works is just the serialization of it. 
you know, both in terms of writing it, but also in terms of like me dealing in my very small way with like the same things that serialized people, you know, that like TV producers and radio producers have been dealing with for a century, you know, of like, to what extent do you let the plot be affected by the fact that like this actor isn't available for a little while or that, you know, you're getting feedback about this and that. And it's like, do you like let it keep going until like the audience like catches up with it or do you try to like play to the what the audience seems to like or doesn't like and and stuff like that so that's that was very new to me and that was uh i you know i wouldn't say hard to get through but it, it was an interesting it was a process i had to always sort of keep in mind about like how i was going to address it yeah now, do, do you uh do most of the writing yourself or is it a team effort for writing um i, I did all the writing for myself uh up until the very the latest season um uh which was done by a guest writer and i'd always hoped that there would be uh i figured that this situation like enough like different the situation of like a mostly alien occupied world like you know had so many story possibilities beyond like what i could even think of that i always sort of hoped to get a guest writer in at some point and so i did and uh she came in and she just did a whole self-contained season that borrowed a couple characters from the main story but wasn't you know, was sort of tangential from the story arc. And it was interesting. You know, I wrote, I, had, I got to write a little show Bible for her of like, you know, this is sort of what, these are directions we go in. These are directions we don't go in here. These are sort of the rules that haven't been stated yet of how this world works. And, you know, so that her stories would stay within it. And it was a very, very uh, rewarding experience doing that. I would say. That's amazing. Amazing. Now, now you mentioned Lovecraft, but uh, what are some of your influences? Uh, well, Lovecraft, I'll, since I've already mentioned him, I'll just get to He was, mm -hmm. I, th I feel like if you're doing a story, you know, as I say, my stories are sort of slow burn and they always start with sort of a, uh, here's a normal situation and then abnormality is added into it sort of thing. Like even Immunities, as serialized as it is, somebody like once point said, it's like you took a Twilight Zone episode and then just made it into a series because in the first episode of it, you don't even know for sure whether the alien invasion has happened yet. Right? It has has really happened, or if it's just a story that somebody's telling. And so uh, that was my way into that. But anyway, I feel like anytime you're telling a story, you know, where it's like, you know, where it's some, you know, they're people and they're kind of dissatisfied with the world, and they like see something that doesn't quite fit, and then the the, the more they look at it, the more terrifying it becomes. I feel like Lovecraft is right is is there, and he definitely absolutely. You know, you know, and I, I definitely had, you know, read enough of him that I knew, I think, you know, even on a level beyond what I was even aware of, that he was influencing me. And then and then in this book itself was the first time that I've actually had a little more fun with that and actually, like, borrowed some of his concepts and, you know, like, done little paraphrases of things he said and things like that. Um, so, yeah, so he's definitely there. And uh, though at the same time, the uh, one thing that I thought, I don't know if it's from his letters or what, but there's a... A movie uh, called Out of Mind. It's one of those like lurker films things that was done at the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival and sold mm -hmm. in their their DVD sets. Um, and uh, what they have, they have like a Lovecraft imitator, and he's like interviewed, like as if he was being interviewed at the time, um, like in this like you know old film thing. And uh, and they you know and they ask him questions, and then his answers are all stuff that Lovecraft said or wrote at one time yeah. or another. And at one point, he's saying that like you know, the the uh, interaction of man. And I'm sure he you know he said man and the universe is interesting hit to him in a way that interactions between man and man is not. And uh, 
I feel like in my writing, the interaction between human, a human and another human is more interesting to me than it was to him. And I use sort of like the universe, you know, in the, the horror, you know, it's like a catalyst. Mostly. I mean, there's some points where the cosmic horror is something like beyond what would normally be an interaction between people. But, you know, I feel like I do a little bit more of like people and their developing relationships and stuff like that than he would. So just as a difference, because I was just thinking back, like, in a Lovecraft story, when people have relationships, it seems like they're almost always set, like, right when the story is started. And if anything, like, they fall apart during the course of the story, maybe, if there's any change at all. But, you know, like, like in Thing on the Doorstep, you know, like, you know, like the, the, the co-protagonists are sort of both friends at that point, And then, you know, as the other one meets Azanath, like, completely out of, yeah, outside the story, you know, and, like, it's all set. And it's just, like, you, you see how then it's aff- affected by the mythos. Yeah, anyway. or or the the friend and you know uh, Herbert West, you know he, his life almost begins when he meets Herbert West. At least, yeah, exactly. And there's interesting ones like you know you could see a version of that or the Hound or some others where you have these like really close friends where like you know it's not just that you know a lot of you know where even on these friendship levels you could imagine a version of a lovecraft story in which like that friend you know the that friendship was really like an interesting facet of the story but it's just not something that seems to to that lovecraft seems all that interested in <laughs> and so exactly. he sort of takes it as a given you know it's like important to the story but it's important as a not as a variable as a constant you know <laughs> and, and then you know something he's working with exactly and you know i i i too love lovecraft but i've often said if he could have written a story with no characters, he would have. <laughs> char- characters were always secondary to him. Yeah, which is, you know, and it's, but it's funny, like, as with a lot of people, you know, I think, like, he had an innate way of, like, being true to characters that, you know, possibly without even being totally aware of it. So, you know, your his characters always feel consistent, to me anyway. Yeah. And so, you know, so he's good at writing them even when he's not really paying that much attention. <laughs> exactly. Know, like, so, so that's one uh, big influence. Um, another one would have to be uh, David Lynch and Mark Frost's Twin Peaks. Uh, it's it just like I saw that at a very formative time, and like everything since then has been affected by it. And I think like one big thing about them, as far as like genre goes, is it always feels like when they do introduce like a supernatural or paranormal element, it always feels like that element is almost inescapable like 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 the world wouldn't make sense if that element wasn't there yeah and you know you know and it's and it makes it sort of almost casual when these things happen and yet terrifying at the same point you know because like there's a point where like laura laura puts out like a mysterious woman gives laura a painting and she puts it on her wall and you're like i know something terrible is going to happen <laughs> or something you know scary is going to happen and it's so much that like if something amazing you know something supernatural didn't happen you'd be like well, that doesn't make sense, you know. So that that sort of taught me that, like, you know, the supernatural should always like not just be internally consistent, but like the world should be such that like this has to happen. It, know, it's a bu- it's built on occult physics. Yeah, yeah, and like like a like a weird other version of that is sort of in the uh, like the the original movie to an extent the TV show too, but the original movie Westworld, 
there's yeah. a point halfway through where like you know there's been no sign that there's like an actual robot rebellion happening or anything like that but you just feel in your guts it's like these rob- robots really have to rebel i mean like, like yeah. the, there's no justice in the world if the robots don't rise up and kill all these people you know and so when it happens you don't need a whole lot of justification for it it just like the the, the morality and you know has been set up such that it's like no these guys these robots have to take revenge it's just, it's just nothing else to it especially you think it was written what 15 20 years before the first computer virus oh right yeah Yeah, you know this was a yeah exactly and so you know Crichton gives us sort of this what would become our daily lives sort of pseudo-scientific virus that's spreading among them at the time but yeah you're absolutely right It, it if it was any other writer but Crichton, you would think it would be the hand of God. Yeah, and I mean, it, it, it almost could be, I guess it's the hand of, like, you know, uh, chaos theory, in a way. You yeah. know, that, like, you know, that, like, you know, the robots are a form of life, and life will find a way, and they're not, they're just not going to sit still. You know, eventually random things will happen such that they're not going to sit still for this anymore, which is pretty much what happens. Yeah, but yeah, because they don't, it was before people could even imagine what kind of agency would be like the thing that turns them against it, uh, against us. Exactly. Yeah, no, especially the, the original movie, I think is way above its, uh, b- before it's time. In fact, and I'm mm-hmm. just going to throw this out, then I'll return it to you, but it was the first movie that had computer CGI special effects. The, oh, the, yeah. the, the Yule Brenner, the Yule Brenner scenes where that's where the first computerized CGI effects where he was seeing when the point of view scenes from Yule Brenner. So oh, no, gotcha, that, gotcha. That that movie, uh, that movie is, I mean, too very very influential on me, but way above its time. Okay, I digress. Sorry. Okay, no, no, that's a uh, that, that that that's great. And then um, see a couple more influences. Um, there, you know, just from reading I did uh, at earlier periods, there are a couple writers who actually are very unlike in many ways one of them being charles delint who's like a big urban fantasy dude and is just really good at like you know he he partially he was was very good at like creating it like a you know this is the real world and there's magic in it but the magic like you can see how the mad nobody's noticed the magic up until now and how it's like worked its way into the world and uh but him and somebody else who i would normally not associate with him until i started thinking about this is uh david drake who's like a big mm. space opera science fiction dude. But one thing they're both really, Yeah, exactly. One thing they're both really good at is like, well, you know, seamlessly switching between characters, you know, a lot of like an ensemble of yeah. characters, you know, which is something that I do, especially in the in uh, Legacy Door. But also in um, like, you know, you can get like halfway through the book and like, you know, introduce a character or, you know, show a background that suddenly like the background character is like, the POV character, and then telling you like one thing about them that you didn't know until this point that makes their situation interesting, and then you know show like you know this little scene with them that affects the plot in some way, and then switch off of them and possibly never get back to them again. But you know, just very you know, they, they're both very good at like you know using these little characters and giving them their due and making and you know creating almost like a little short story like in the middle of the novel that's about this person, and then you know and now you we're back again you know with the protagonists and. Uh, <laughs> You know what I liked about David Drake? Mm-hmm. He was a lawyer. And that seems sort of strange, <laughs> but he knew how to research, and he knew how to pull these little things. So he used to make the 
best anthology books because he knew how to research them and how to get the stories. And so in the 80s, I loved his anthologies because he could get stories that no one else could. Oh, that's really interesting. One thing, one funny thing about him for me is that, um, like, uh, the series of his that I like the most is one called Crisis in Empire. And it, uh, every book of it is him co-writing with a different author. And I always yeah. wondered exactly what his part, you know, if he was like, you know, sort of the idea guy, like creating the world and like, you know, having the answers to all the questions. And then he brought the other person in to sort of like do the storytelling within that. But that's just a theory. But, uh, yeah, and, you know, probably, and, probably right. Yeah. And there'll be a thing where like, you know, the equivalent of a Star Trek thing, you know, where it's like, okay, you know, we've got to check this thing out, you know, send a red shirt down there. And then, you know, you'll get like, okay, what was this red shirt's life up until now? You know, <laughs> to the extent that it's, you know, uh, relevant to what's happening right now, and here's what they do, and here's how they die, but here's how what they managed to accomplish before they died that's very important to the plot, and now we're back again. And uh, and uh, they, there have been various points in my books where I've been called upon to do something, where I felt like I, I should do something like that, and I always sort of think back to how he did it, or how his co-authors did it, since it's so hard to tell, like, you know, which parts are him and which parts are them, but it seems to happen in a lot of his books. Exactly. Now, um, you actually, I mean, with uh, podcasts and store books, I mean, you, you've got your, your fingers in a, a lot of delicious pies there. But uh, if you had your choice, what would your dream project be? Well, in a way, it would be kind of like the thing I just described for David Drake. It would be like, you know, sort of like if there was an ongoing genre show, I would love to be like sort of a writer in a writer's room type environment for that show, particularly if they needed somebody to kind of be the mythology person. You know, who kept track of like you know the metaphysics and the rules and stuff like that, and you know how that you know in the history and all that and how that was supposed to work. You know, but you know not exclusively doing that. Like you know maybe like writing episodes when I had good ideas for episodes, but for me not to ha have to do that on a regular basis and other people who were better at that kind of doing that. And I don't know if that job ever existed or you know exists now the way TV is now. But, yeah. but you said you know what's my fantasy? So that would be my my fantasy would be something like that. You know, that's, and for that's, some reason no, that's fair enough. Yeah, and for some reason for like TV rather than feature films, I don't know why. It just that seems more. I guess TV is somewhat more of a writer's medium than films are. But yeah, especially now when we have so many ways to you know DVRs and preserve you know stories there really are eight hour movies as opposed to episodic like they used to be yeah 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 sometimes sometimes to the detriment <laughs> yeah 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 I think there are oh, few no, no, shows no, where they could, take, they could take a couple lessons in terms of like you know every episode should have you know a beginning middle and end and have be doing something that's distinct from the episode before and the episode after it. You know, I think like the best shows do that and, you know, other shows don't. And, you know, hopefully like new things like, for instance, like WandaVision, you know, which, you know, recently ended, you know, like you can't mistake any episode of WandaVision for any other episode of WandaVision, you know, yeah. like, you know, and it's telling a continuous story. Even though story, they tell it, they tell, yeah, an ongoing story. Exactly. But each one's so completely different. And, uh, I think you know. I think that's a great merger of the two styles, and uh, I don't think every you know. I don't think every show hits it as well as they did. So here for April, this is amazing April for Radio Free Oleander, and so I want to sort of end it on 
what what's something you think that's amazing i'll leave that completely open-ended to you i mean i think just the the access that everybody has to like the written word and knowledge and you know and also fiction of you know previous times not that that we you know is just amazing it, it, it's simply amazing like when i was you know thinking in terms of like well i think of the next thing it feels like this is going to be some kind of like paranormal mystery type thing like what's the like the background of that you know because my thought of that immediately goes as far back as like maybe eyes of Lara mars in the 70s or you know some weird films where somebody has a, a dream that's a clue like there's this film called strange illusion from i think the 50s it's like that but anyway so you know but you know sitting down with wikipedia <laughs> i was able to like figure out you know like the history of this genre you know like within minutes and you know and not only that but find out you know though there was you know in the early days of mystery novels there was a whole current of psychic detectives and here's their books and you, you know, yes. they're all gutenberg project you can read them if you want to and like is able to read the stuff and it's like oh wow in these ways they're like like something i would want to do and in these ways they're on something i would want to improve upon and just the fact that i could just do all that you know and not like you know have to get like special permission from some university to like track these books down is just astounding <laughs> yes i i am a niche person and i am a niche artist but also you can find that niche. You, sh- you can find the people who want to share what your art is, even if it is maybe not mass marketing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, then the same goes for information too. Like insistent oracles, there's a whole section of insistent oracles where, like, my protagonist who are these two, like, astronomy grad students who have like become convinced that there's a UFO tra- transiting through the solar system, even though nobody has a photo of it. And so they're having to, like, use, figure out stuff, like, you know, like, what effect did it have on the, like, orbit of this asteroid and stuff like that, you know, that, that it might have collided with. And um, so, you know, there's a lot of math and a lot of information that was necessary in order to, like, you know, you know, and most of it the audience doesn't get, but I, I needed it just in order to figure out what was plausible. And I was able to get it so fast, <laughs> you know, like I was able to do like all this napkin math, like, you know, it was just amazing. And doing exactly. that, you know, you find stuff you didn't even expect to find. Like, you know, I found out that like that, that a good candidate for this asteroid was this one called Medusa. And so I get to like have them say like, you know, well, what about the Medusa incident? You know, it's like, OK, that sounds cool. <laughs> exactly. And you could sit down and, and I'm sure that you're probably a really good researcher. But exactly like we were saying, you know, you could get all this information at the touch of your, you know, your your keyboard, where in the 70s, early 80s, David Drake needed a law degree to get all these stories collected. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, I, I you know, and I have to agree that is if, if there is one really sort of positive, awesome thing about our time, I think that's it. Not necessarily what people do with this knowledge, but this our access to knowledge is amazing. Yeah, and I mean, and I'm somebody who like, you know, I live in a major city. I have a college degree, you know. So I was, I'm somebody who, with you know, with more work, would have been able to get all this information. But you know, this is also available to people who are like, you know, for whom it would have been a lot harder. I mean, including, you know, people living out on isolated goat farms, you know, where exactly. mysterious things are cutting them off from the rest of the world all the time. <laughs> exactly. That keeps us, you know, I feel bored without it. 
<laughs> so, so we're about to run out of time, but if someone is interested in listening to Immunities or getting one of your books, what's the best way? Um, well, you can get uh, to Immunities directly at uh, immunitiesdrama.com. Um, I have a, a sort of like a brand name for myself, which is Hamlet Series, because like one of my first things was a Hamlet web series. And uh, so if you go to hamletseries.com, there's always like sort of a listing of like various different things that I've done. Um, but uh, if you want to try directly, Legacy Door is uh, available on Amazon Kindle and also paperback. And uh, the in- Insistent Oracles, the previous thing, is uh, available the same way. And, uh, yeah, that should be it for now. Well, excellent. Well, we will definitely have been very enjoyable, so we will definitely have you in the future. Uh, thank you for visiting. Oh, it's, uh, it's been a, g- a great and strange visit. Well, thank you. That, that's our goal, great and strange. <laughs> I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror film. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos, The Hands of Fate, and one of the creators of the original chill role-playing game. This book recreates the thrills of the classic monster versus monster film. We've got vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, scheming madmen, and plenty of unexpected chills. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors in print or for Kindle at Amazon.com and other fine retailers. Coming soon in other ebook formats. Find out more at CushingHorrors.com or SDSullivan.com and support Steve's work through Patreon at PaySteve.com. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again. And remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. Things Dave thought about when he was feeding the goats. One of my faves. All right. Hey, Dave. So, uh... Yes? You, you, you were feeding the goats the other day, as, as, as you're known to do, and uh, you texted me, do you want to talk about albums? And I said, sure. Yeah, yeah. So I was just thinking, you know, I was thinking about albums. You know, usually I think about songs, but I think about albums... And, and the albums that I really like. Uh-huh. Now, you are, you are probably, I mean, you make musical instruments. You're much more, you you, you know music much better than I do. So I, I expect you've got a much more sophisticated taste, better understanding. I'm just the, you know, I don't know music, but I know what I like type of guy. Yeah, yeah. No, I gotcha. So, so um, let's start out there. Uh, and not necessarily in any order. And uh, but what, what's some of your favorite albums? Oh, uh, I have to say one of my favorite albums of all time. Yeah, Dandelion Bubblegum is uh, the third studio album by Black Moth Super Rainbow, an experimental band out of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, it's very kind of. How do I, the best way to describe it, it's like lo-fi psychedelic music made by a sex cult. I, I don't know, it's, it's, it's like, has this like, kind of like weird, dreamy, dreary lustiness to it. Uh, very kind of experimental 
and the I don't know one of the people who's a major part of it also has other product uh, projects uh, that they're involved with like tobacco but instead of C's it's X's and uh, Demon Queen and I'm trying to remember anything else off the top of my head, but uh, those those uh, three there are very kind of similar, kind of like very kind of almost the same band, but not quite. And it's very kind of like, just kind of like this dark, dreamy, dreary, almost dredgy, sometimes kind of like, sounds like malfunctioning music. I don't know how to describe it other than that. I don't know if it is describable, but uh, Dandelion Bubblegum, is a very kind of sunny, poppy version of this music that this kind of group uh, plays. And I don't know, it's, it's very kind of like the, 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 the words are very cryptic and very kind of like, I don't know, you could interpret or misinterpret it in a multitude of ways. And I just really kind of like it. It's it's the sh songs are fairly short, and it's a fairly long album, I believe. It's it's got like eighteen, nineteen, twenty something uh, tracks on it, and it's I, I think it's really good music for all kinds of stuff, whether it be doing housework, yard work, uh, pre-party stuff. Uh, oh, I don't cool. know. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I highly recommend it. Dandelion Bubblegum by Black Moth Super Rainbow. What do you got, Dave? So, uh, and, and, and you know, you asked me, what's my favorite album? Uh -huh. And it's kind of like asking me, you know, what's my favorite food? Sure. You know, I'm, I'm going to give you an honest answer, but today it might be pizza. You know, tomorrow it might be enchiladas. Those uh -huh. are honest answers. It just yeah. varies once in a while. And I am going to be much more of a sellout than you are. Um, but I'm going to say, I think that the greatest ever studio album ever made uh -huh. is U2's Joshua Tree. Okay. And this is where you can tell me where I don't know don't know music. No, that's... This was before they started sucking. Uh -huh. And they were politically, they were relevant, they rocked, you know, and they carried a little bit of that into Rattle and Hum. Uh -huh. But then they go up for like a decade where their music was just so so but yeah. this one i think was their epitome yeah 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 no no i i feel like joshua tree definitely was a really good album that kind of um kind of showed us the limitations of u2 and after that it's like okay well you two can make music as long as they have all of this extra stuff with them. Oh, and now they need all of this extra more stuff with them. <laughs> and then it has to be this big, huge, showy thing to distract from the fact that the Edge only knows one run. <laughs> you know, but the, the, the one thing, though, that, that people, I think, forget a lot with uh -huh. you two yeah. is when they were younger, yeah. they were really political. Oh, yeah. And oh, yeah. Joshua Tree comes out of after uh, them traveling uh, with uh, little Stevie and the, mm -hmm. uh, doing the anti-apartheid songs. Yeah. So there's some really, you get things like um, where the streets have no name, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or um, there's still some really political, I think, I love the music. And, and I, yeah. I mean, I get it that I'm sort of meat potatoes music guy mm -hmm. but yeah i think that, that this they were they were uh 
you know, they were up there. They were, I, I think this is their height, as well as I think this is the height of their, their, uh, their political. And I, they, they definitely, with uh, some kind of homecoming and Bloody Sunday, they were definitely much more political. And, and I think this kind of was the end of that. And I miss that from you too. Although, although they have done some songs too about AIDS in Africa. So, so you know, there's that. So, what else do you have for us? Okay. Well, this is one of those kind of like, uh, this is one of these albums that I've loved forever. And normally, I'd say something like the White Album, but that I feel like is such a broad kind of like. There's anyone who like is familiar with the White Album. There's a lot of people who aren't familiar with the White Album, but the White Album is kind of like one of these beloved things. No one goes, oh, the White Album, what a piece of garbage. They just threw that together in two hours. But um, it is a amazingly overproduced studio album called Asia by Steely Dan. <laughs> okay. And uh, the hits that are on Asia... I'll Not to, to be confused with Orly, Oleander's own Steely Dawn. Uh, the uh, ones that it has on it that people generally know uh, would be, I believe, uh, Deacon Blues, uh, Peg okay. with uh, backing vocals by Michael McDonald. Peg! Is, uh, Josie. 1977's Asia. So yeah, jazz rock band Steely Dan. It's it's just one of those albums. I guess it's existed almost as long as I've been alive. So it's it's one of those things. It's like always been around since I've been like conscious of music. It's one of those things that I remember a lot of like the music stations I heard growing up in Portland were like uh, soft soft rock, contemporary, jazz, music, kink, true to the music, jazz, FM, this, that, yeah. And kind of the, the, the background music or the, uh, of your life? Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, working in grocery stores and uh, when I was like younger and working in restaurants and stuff, it's just been kind of like this like um, thing that just kind of like has always been there. And at one point in time, I was like, paid a little bit of attention was like oh this stuff is really kind of dark and sardonic and smart i really like steely dan but uh i have to say that uh asia is probably uh my favorite steely dan album and like one of my favorite kind of uh oh man i don't know how to uh, actually, no. I mean, Asia is probably one of my favorite Steely Dan albums, but my actual favorite Steely Dan album is uh, Countdown to Ecstasy, which uh, had showbiz kids in my old school as the singles on it. And uh, showbiz kids in my old school, I think, are tremendously amazing songs that have very cool kind of grooves and beats to them. If you haven't heard my old school or showbiz kids, uh, stop listening right now. Go to YouTube, uh, type in Steely Dan, showbiz kids, Steely Dan, my old school. Uh, one is about how uh, shallow and shitty people are in Los Angeles. And the other one's about... Uh, a drug bust 
in a uh, college at, at, at uh, Bard College uh, when Steely Dan was in was in college. Uh, that involved uh, someone uh, who was also involved in Watergate. But yeah, <laughs> countdown to ecstasy. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, wait a minute. I like Countdown to Ecstasy a lot more than I like Asia. But yeah, uh, Countdown to Ecstasy. Well, we'll count them both. Yeah. Also, Countdown to Ecstasy has a song called King of the World, which is post apocalyptic. <laughs> which is, it starts out with someone kind of like asking if there's anyone out there while they're like talking on an old ham radio. And uh, then just kind of like goes on from there, and at one point in time mentions uh, going past the uh, driving past the ruins of Santa Fe, and it's it's just kind of like a cool song, and kind of like all the songs are very kind of like um, oh uh, what's 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 the word. Uh, um, What's said about them invite? Uh, what's what said about them uh, inspires uh, mental visions? Uh, it's uh, oh goodness, hallucinogenic. No, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that. Um, but as I listen to it, I, I I get a lot of like music videos in my head of Steely Dan more than a lot of other music. Uh, it's 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 very kind of. If, if you know the word that I'm thinking of, people, write it in. Uh, contact us, uh, Radio Free Oleander, 11.30 a.m., uh, Oleander, Oregon. Look for us on Facebook. Links in the show notes. Uh, what, what do you got going on, Dave? Make up a word. Send yeah. it to us. Yeah. Uh, what do you have? Uh, what's another album that you're a big fan of? So my next one comes out. In 1990. Okay. And I think it's the epitome of alternative 90s and epitome of college rock. Okay. And I was at college at that time. And is, this that an R- is, is this an REM album? No. No. Okay. This is, this is I, also, I think, the most fun album ever made. And it's Flood by They Might Be Giants. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, I have to agree with you. Uh, Flood, They Might Be Giants. That came out when I was in middle school, I believe. Uh, 1990, yeah. If if you're to believe the title song. (laughs) And, and, you know, I don't know. Have you kept up with the They Might Be Giants uh, career? I uh, um, They do kid music. Yeah, yeah. Mink Car was the last album I bought of theirs. Yeah, so they do music for about science and teaching kids uh-huh. um, science. But this was, I remember, this was like, if you were a cool nerd, uh-huh. you know, you you quoted Flood. And I remember listening to Flood over and over. Oh, and yeah. It's just a fun song. Uh, did you see, um, oh, uh, the uh, Umbrella Academy? Yes. So first season, either first or second episode, mm-hmm. when the mercenaries come to the donut place to take out five, mm-hmm. and he just wipes them all out. Yeah, they're doing it to uh, Istanbul. Oh yeah, yeah. that's yeah. just the most fun song ever. Mm-hmm. And and in the nineties, I remember my mom knew all the lyrics to Istanbul. Mm-hmm. You know, not Constantinople, because it's an old thirties song. Yeah, and then they just took it and and just alt rock the heck out of it. Yeah. Um, 
you know, birdhouse in your soul. Uh, I remember, you know, we would sit around, Particle Man, that's like the nature of God, you know, we would have all these discussions. Or, you know, you and your racist friend, mm-hmm. you know, what a song for our time. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so no, and it's just, it's all these really sort of, you know, uh, twisting in the wind. You know, uh-huh. It's about, you know, it's about you broke up with me. I feel like I'm being, I feel like I'm being hung. Sure. But it's fun, you know. Women and men, you know, symbolic about boats being crashed, whistling in the dark. But they're all fun, mm-hmm. and yeah, mm-hmm. I, that's the, the most fun album I think ever. Yeah, yeah, I have to say, uh, Flood is like I feel like the first like kind of like really polished album they might be giants had i really like their stuff before that and i this is really no shocker i really like experimental music i like lo-fi music i like prog rock and um they might be giants had a lot of elements and a lot of things that kind of like hit certain um tabs for me and just kind of like oh wow all these things that i like because i don't know i was a i was a kid who loved music and loved all kinds of different music when i was a kid and by the time i hit they might be giants i was like oh wow there's there's like kind of like a lack of studio production here but also a lot of creativity this is really cool stuff and then when i heard flood i was like whoa okay cool this is this is this is really nice and it just kind of like um they just kind of like picked up and moved on. And then after a while, I think I just kind of like, I want to say outgrew them or I don't want to say like, I, I just lost interest in them, but it's just like, uh, I went one way musically and they might be giants was not that way. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I think they're real, really awesome. I still like their old stuff and I just haven't heard their new stuff, but yeah, they might be giants is awesome. Yeah. So what, what else do you have? Oh, um, what else do I have? I have, uh, I just want to go with an artist in general. I, I want to say Brian Eno. Um, and th- this, this like covers like, uh, as Brian Eno, the uh, visual and audio artist who also produces albums and has. Who he, he produced Joshua Tree. Yeah, yes One he of the did. On Joshua Tree. Yes he did. And he also produced uh stuff for Talking Heads, Devo, uh Coldplay, I guess, and uh was a member of Roxy Music and oh. uh you know, started out as like doing kind of like artsy glam rock and with like black peacock feather outfits and just like very sparkly and then moved into like almost like proto new wave well not proto new wave like new wave that then like turned into ambient music but then just kept going and pushing the envelope in ambient music kind of like creating and then just like going as far as you can and it's uh, stuff that I just really, really, really enjoy. And uh, the prophecy theme for Dune is uh, Brian Eno, and there's music in there that's Brian mm. Eno. And there's 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 a lot. If if you look up Brian Eno, I, I I think if I don't know, you like glam rock. If you like ambient music. Uh, I, I don't know. I just have to say, Brian Eno is one of my 
my number one huge favorites. Uh, I'm a big fan of the album. <laughs> oh, I, I feel dumb. I have to look this stuff up. I'm going to have to probably cut this part well, out. Well, I sort of threw this at you. So I kind of threw this at you of short notice. So oh, yeah. I cheated. I have notes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's why I come off of cuts slick and sophisticated because yeah. I have notes. Uh, you have notes. That's that's cool. I should have notes next time. Uh, but I knew about it. I had time to think about it because I take a notepad when I go into the the go fields. Yeah, but uh, I want I want to say, uh, here come the warm jets, which a lot of the music from that was used in kind of a <sighs> fictionalized version of Iggy Pop and David Bowie's alleged romance, and since they couldn't get rights to anyone they made people up and they couldn't get rights to david bowie's music but brian eno's music they were able to get rights to so they used like a lot of stuff from brian eno's here come the warm jets which is very kind of loud and glammy and taking tiger mountain by strategy kind of goes into like kind of like i don't know indie pop uh not indie pop um uh, new wave kind of indie pop kind of like experimental ways and it just keeps going with another green world before and after science and then at one point it just starts to become a lot of like ambient music is going on at the same time and uh, it's it's just, just really kind of amazing stuff and if you like ambient music but um, yeah no no and uh, yeah, and then, uh, yeah, I, I don't need to, like, go through all of his stuff, but uh, I, I really like what uh, Brian Eno has produced and what Brian Eno has uh, created. And if, if you've listened to this podcast over the last five years, I think I've mentioned Brian Eno a number of times, at least for uh, with uh, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. But, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, the Microsoft sound. Uh, Brian Eno did the Microsoft sound for Windows 95. So there's I something did not know that. that if you didn't know, it's like, hey, the Windows sound for Windows 95. Brian Eno. <laughs> All right. Uh, do you have anything else there, Dave? So, yeah, so I have a couple more. And I think this is the best live album. Okay. Uh 10,000 Maniacs Unplugged. Oh. Very I cool. Loved and and I, I love 10,000 Maniacs, mm-hmm. but Natalie Merchant's voice goes so well acoustically. And this, you know, of course, you know, uh, Because of the Night, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, that's the big one that had lots of radio play. But, you know, there's I'm Not the Man, which is basically a murder mystery in a song. Mm-hmm. Um... Um, I think one of the most powerful songs is uh, "Eat for Two about a, a you know a, an unwed mother or a pregnant woman who is unwed. Uh, Trouble me is just beautiful. I mean, so I think that is probably my favorite acoustic album, but it's yeah. also I think my favorite um, live album. Cool. Uh, I think Unplugged was just brilliant in mm-hmm. the early '90s. I don't know enough to say anything. Oh. <laughs> oh, so I've got a few more. If you don't have any any others, oh, um, 
Yeah, I, 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 I definitely do. I definitely do. Um, I have to say, uh, as, as much I, I have said earlier that I am a huge, huge, huge Beatles fan, but, uh, and I'm also a huge Paul McCartney fan, and I'm a huge Wings fan. And lately, I've been listening to a lot of Back to Egg, which was Wings' final album, and it never really got the uh, the press that it deserved or the tour that it deserved because Paul McCartney got busted for marijuana possession in Japan, <laughs> and uh, the tour stopped, and everything kind of like died about this album. And it, it's like Paul McCartney's attempts at like new wave music and like punk rock, but there's there's like all kinds of like very kind of like like I'm a cool angry guy, yeah. I I I get all the I get all the titties. I I like stuff. I'm cool. <laughs> kind of like feeling songs on this album, um, and. It's 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 kind of like a different energy than what people may be used to from Wings and Paul McCartney in general, and it's kind of a refreshing take, and it's something that I really enjoy. And it's like that and Venus and Mars are like two of my favorite uh, Wings Paul McCartney albums, and I listen to a lot <laughs> a lot of Paul McCartney uh, when I'm working, just because it's like it turns into this just like dumb background music that I can just like zone out to but also I know all the words to so if if someone is has to bust something out in karaoke I can just be like gotcha <laughs> what else you got there Dave so this is and I know you really like lo-fi uh-huh. this I think is the most polished most hi-fi for a band that is known for lo-fi. Interesting. But I think their most polished album is my favorite, and that's Heretic Pride by the Mountain Goats. Oh! I don't know if I know and, any songs includes, on that one. So it has Lovecraft in Brooklyn. Okay. Which is a song, uh, and, and uh, it, which is basically this song about, it uses all these different Lovecraft references uh-huh. for a person who is just he's alienated he's freaking out sure. all the people around him and he's experienced Lovecraft's experience in Brooklyn but he also talks about the Migos and, and Rhode Island falling into the ocean uh, he has another there's another song and, and this is still I mean they're a band now this was when they were a band but this was really sort of it's always been sort of John Darnell's project and mm-hmm. these are, I think he wrote all these songs um Sax Romer, you know, the same thing. It's songs about, you know, this pulp writer and experience, but it's using sort of modern emotions. Mm-hmm. There's uh, Michael Myers Resplendent. You know, this is, you know, why can't Michael Myers from Halloween get love? You know, uh, same thing. It's sort of uh, how to embrace a swamp creature. And this is, you know, why can't the, the, the swamp monster get love? Yeah. But it has... Um, uh, in the craters of Moon, uh, uh, Marduk uh, T-shirt men rooms incident, mm-hmm. which is this just yeah you got to listen to it, really understand the words and um, 
uh, in the craters of the moon, which is about you know soldiers coming back from wars, uh, and it's definitely their most polished, and I like it the most. Uh, but a lot of people prefer. I mean, they want to listen to the the mountain goats. They want lo-fi. Yeah. Uh, but I like I said I like their their most polished album the most. Yeah. Huh. Uh, you have any others you want to share? Or? Oh, uh, I, I there's a, a little album uh, by an obscure band. Uh, <laughs> I'm just going to start joking about an obscure band out of um, out of Seattle. Uh, little Queenie by uh, or Little Queen by Heart is like one of my favorite okay. albums of all time. Uh, the number one, uh, uh, number one song on that, of course, is, is Barracuda, but also, uh, Kick It yeah. Out and Little Queen are, are also. And if you get the 24 or 2004 remastered, there's uh, Stairway to Heaven, which is pretty damn amazing. Mm. And uh, yeah, I like hard folk rock, so uh, I'm a huge fan of Heart. Also, it's something I grew up with uh, on all the time. Like, my mom played this album and Dreamboat Annie and Dog and the Butterfly all the GD time. And I, I liked Heart a lot more than the Carly Simon albums. Uh, no offense, Mom. Not that yeah. she ever listens, but... Yeah, no. Uh, also, I can play Barracuda, or parts of Barracuda on my guitar. <laughs> or any guitar. It's, it's like one of the first things oh, I learned how to play song. was the intro to Barracuda. <laughs> What's that? Uh, oh, it's an amazing song. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What else do you got there, Dave? So, uh, one maybe more mentioned, and then maybe a couple of, of honorable mentions. Mm-hmm. And that is, and again, this is a 90s, you know, when I was growing up, uh, alternate rock uh, band, Belly. And their second album, King. Okay. Uh, they're much better known for their first album. They had songs like Feed the Tree. And, and to me, I mean, I'm a huge Belly fan. I'm a huge, huge Tanya Donnelly fan. Mm-hmm. The first album, um, the first album um, was just oh, was Star, and to me it was a hit and miss. But I just loved Belly, and Belly, uh, I loved King, and King was going to be the album. And I remember that they released, so they released the video for um, uh, oh for uh, one of their songs uh, in between the episodes. Um, or in between the commercials of X Files, when X Files was at the, the, you know, this was 1995 when X Files was at the zenith of its popularity. So in between, during the commercials, they released um, Now They'll Sleep. Mm-hmm. That's how big of a band they were going to be. And they just didn't quite make the sophomore, the, the, the sophomore. Jinx. I mean, they sold, I think, 350,000 albums, which is, I guess, decent. Mm-hmm. But it just, they didn't connect the same way the star did, even though I thought that King was a better album. And, and Tanya Donnelly says, you know, part of it was I just wasn't old enough and mature enough to lead a band through that. Yeah. And that's really why they dissolved. And I saw about three years ago, uh, 
they came back. Uh, they, they've regathered, uh, and I saw them three years ago, and they are just as amazing as they were in the '90s. Uh, so they've got a, a, a new, uh, new, new album, a three years old Dove. Uh, but I still think King is the best album that they've ever done, uh, with songs like Red, um, Seal My Fate. Uh, superconductor, you know, or superconducted, um, just an amazing album. And you know, in a, in a fair alternative universe, they would have been a powerhouse throughout the '90s and the early 2000s. Yeah. Uh, so I've got a couple of, I've got a couple of honorable mentions though too. Sure, go for it. So I think the best. Uh, the best, uh, greatest hits. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bruce Springsteen's. All right. Uh, I, I want to. And, and, I, I oh. and I love some of it. Like, um, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to talk over you there. Oh yeah, no, go for it. Uh, no, and I love you know uh, Atlantic City. You know, um, just all of his uh, Thunder Road. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. So I think I think um, definitely the best, uh, greatest hits. Um, a little obscure, and I hate to say this, that this band is known better for the tragic death of their lead singer, mm. music, and that's the Zet, uh, or uh, the uh, the Gets. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Uh, with Mia Zapata. Yeah. Mia Zapata was, what, five foot two, mm-hmm. but she had the lungs of Mama Cass. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and... You know, you, I can't think of their music without thinking of her passing and, and her tragic murder. But at the same part, there's some power, especially Frenchy and the Bully. Mm-hmm. Uh, Frenchy and the Bully, they only did two albums while, you know, she was live. Uh, they did do a third album, I believe, with a male uh, vocalist. But uh, it's just... Uh, uh, the Conquering Cosmic Chicken, I believe, and Frenchie the Bully, and that's the one that I, I just really love. And then finally, uh, uh, oh, White Lights, White Trash by Social Distortion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and again, that's just a that's just a fun sort of you know roll down the windows, get in the car, and drive. Sure, you know? yeah, I I, I I I agree with everything you just said in that statement. Uh, my two honorable mentions are Winoni Harris, uh, a uh, blues shouter from the uh, 40s, 50s, and 60s, uh, best known for songs like Who Threw the Whiskey in the Well, uh, Good Rockin' Tonight, Grandma Plays the Numbers, All She Wants to Do is Rock, uh, Good Morning Judge, uh, just kind of like fun, raucous um, rhythm and blues proto rock kind of just like fuck yeah I, I, I don't know I'm, I'm not really that raucous right now recovering uh yeah oh Winona well, Harris when you are, you're gonna be playing that album yeah what's that when you are that's the album you're gonna be playing yeah and uh because of the time that uh, Winona Harris came out, it wasn't like you'd get a Winona Harris album. You'd get a big old Winona Harris 78. 
and play one side of it and then flip it over. And Winona Harris worked with all kinds of people like Roy Brown and got ripped off by all kinds of people like Elvis Presley. <laughs> and, uh, my next, my next uh, fave that I have to say, I love this album and I love their early stuff and not their later stuff. Not that there's anything bad with their later stuff or any side projects is a little band from England known as Genesis. Okay. I love like check out track down Genesis, the knife. It's, it's like, Oh wow. I could base whole D and D campaigns off of that. That is so amazing. And then there is a concept album that I think is just like amazing to just like sit down and listen to. It's called uh, "The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway," and it's just this just amazing. There's uh, I don't know if there's any hits off of this album. I don't know if there could be any hits off of this album. Um, it's it's just one of these kind of very. I don't know, thought-provoking, not thought-provoking, image-provoking, whatever that word is that you're supposed to write in, folks. Uh, I don't know. Uh, a lamb lies down on Broadway. Track it down. Uh, it's, it's an amazing album about a person whose name is Rail. Uh, they or a graffiti artist in New York and then something happens and they enter kind of a weird world and that's the best way I can talk about it without like ruining anything for anyone but it's 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 very kind of like uh, Pilgrim's Progress kind of sort of thing and it's 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 a work of art not just musically not just lyrically but story structure wise and then it just kind of leaves things open-ended in parts, and you're supposed to interpret things. And I, I don't know. Um, I, I, I love albums like that. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. sort of the concept. So, so real quickly too, I hadn't really thought about this, but uh -huh. something else happened this weekend. So I was cleaning out a bunch of just drawers, and I found this little vinyl square. Oh, cool! And it was from. Billy and the Bongers. Because, uh, Billy and the Bongers bootleg. I had that Bloom County. I have that Bloom County book, and I still think I have that flex insert. Yes, yeah, so I found that just in a pile of things. That, uh, uh, I, you know, yes, and I remember, and again, this is 90s. You know, we still had a, um, you know, a... Uh, uh, a record player and you know it, it could play it and you know it was obviously just made for the book oh yeah for those who don't remember you know in the 90s bloom county was the cutting edge comic i mean it it, it, it was surpassed even doonesbury it made doonesbury and, look like 60 minutes man <laughs> yeah. and yeah, and it was just yeah. So I yeah, I just thought about that too. I just dug that up. So you know, uh, Google if you don't know what Bloom County is or who Billy and the Bongers are, go ahead and Google it because uh, it's worth it. Yeah, yeah, we have quite a Google list. I'll I'll try and remember what the Google list is, and maybe I'll just put links in the show notes and save everyone some trouble. I don't know. <laughs> All right, so. Um, 
Is that it for music, Dave? Do we have anything else? I think that we pretty much covered it for for at least today. I think. All right. We'll probably. We're all gonna. We're both gonna go to bed. Is oh no, I should have mentioned. And so next week is gonna be. <laughs> oh yeah, and we know we talked about albums last week. But oh yeah. I just forgot to say. Oh yeah, that's one reason why I mentioned Brian Eno, so I could also mention Talking Heads and Devo in the same breath. (laughs) And the one good U2 album. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, That's it for this week of Radio Free Oleander. Dave, what do you got to say for yourself? I am well, and I hope you are well, too. All right. That sounds pretty good. All right, everyone. We'll see you next week. I'm not sure who we're talking to, but I hope you liked, uh, I hope you liked the interview with Bob. Uh, I met Bob a number of years ago at the HP Lovecraft Film Festival and became friends with him on Facebook and yeah, had him back on the show. So we're super glad to have Bob back on. And uh, Dave? And check, check, check out him. Immunities. It's worth it. Oh, yeah. Definitely check out Immunities. Uh, look for that in the show notes for sure. Dave, I hope you have a good rest of the week, and I will talk to you next week. Uh, if I see you around town, I'll wave from six feet or further. <laughs> and, and I will put my. I will be wearing my mask. All right. Cool, cool. Everyone, wear your mask. Wash your hands. Don't be a jerk. Um, we, we've, we're doing a thing around the office and around town lately. We're calling it Sci-Fives. It's where you put your hand up and you pretend like you're high-fiving, but you're doing it psychically. So who knows? We may develop psychic powers with this town. It's hard to say. We'll see you next week, everyone. Bye. All right. That's what I was waiting for. <laughs> see you next time, Dave. Bye. You're listening to KZOM, only on public radio. Invocative. I was looking for the word invocative. Something that invokes. Okay, all right.